The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. Whatever. I'm telling you now so you don't wonder later. Have I ever lied to you? No. And I'm not going to start now. So why bring it up? You know how it makes me feel. I'm a sensitive guy. (laughs) I'm the announcer for the Ellis Martin Report, and I'm okay with my feelings. Okay, on the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. I'll be speaking with Dudley Baker of commonstockwarrants.com about his recent appearance at the New York Hard Assets Conference. I'll chat with Stuart Ross of El Tigre Silver Corp about their silver mine in Sonora State, Mexico in the Sierra Madres. Then it's Greg Johnson of Prophecy Platinum and their large platinum palladium project in the Canadian Yukon of significant merit. And then finally, I'll speak with my old friend Ian Chalmers of Alkane Resources about the Dubbo Zirconia project all the way down in Australia. I welcome your comments as always. Email me at martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports at gmail.com. Let's begin the program. Dudley Baker is the editor of CommonStockWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Dudley, welcome back to the program. Good to be here, Ellis. Now, you were in New York recently at the Hard Assets Conference. I was not. I chose to stay home here in beautiful Southern California. I heard that not too many companies were exhibiting at the show. That seemed to be the case, but according to other sources, the attendance was the same as usual. This was probably the lowest company turnout that I've seen, and maybe there was only 30-some-odd companies, which sounds unbelievably low to be putting on a show, but it seemed like there was a lot of retail participation, meaning investors that showed up. I was asking the promoters of the event, so the metals and mining group, so they had like 1,500 people that were pre-registered. They estimated that there was probably 900 to 1,000 in the room when Ron Paul did his speech, and that was cool, and I was you know, standing in the back of the room as well for a good while, so that was a pretty good turnout. I was really surprised, expecting the worst, but it, it turned out better, so you know, hopefully those companies that were there got some good retail participation and some good visits. My role this year was just kind of, to, it was totally different for me, got to moderate the second afternoon for about three, three and a half hours. That was really a, a cool opportunity. 
opportunity for me. Do you know if the attendees were there to see speakers, people like yourself or Dr. Paul, or are they really wanting to know who is coming out in this crazy market to hawk their wares with regard to the 30 or so mining companies presenting? Yeah, that's tough for me to get a handle on there. You've always got a few people that are walking around, and literally all they're looking for is the little souvenirs that they can pick up. You know how that is? People companies have pens and pencils and ducks and doily kind of things sitting out there. I saw a couple people like, what in the hell are they doing here? They're just uh, collecting a few items and then probably left the building. But, you know, we don't get much of that. I know that was much more common back when they had it in Las Vegas. Just kind of street people come in, walk through the conference, and since it's free. I think, in my mind, it'd be worthwhile just throwing a $25 minimum head on it, you know, most of us probably would not mind paying. But that definitely keeps the riffraff kind of out of the building. It was a good group of people. I chatted with a lot of people and spreading the word on kind of the new extension of my services. Uh, It was cool. It was productive. And I think everybody that was there came away with a good feeling, which was the main thing. So I know when I was leaving the building the last afternoon, again, the promoters of this event, there was a group of them standing to the side. And I went over and, and they were pleased at the conference and how it all went. Usually when we go to a conference of this sort, we take attendance into consideration when judging the future of the market. Is there hope? Can we make that statement? What I take away from is that whether it's my view and Rick Rule was on the podium and uh, a lot of the other guys uh, in the business, you know, the recognition that this is literally a big sale going on here, like we're a Bloomingdale sale or a Macy sale. And uh, the question is, is there going to be further markdowns? In other words, does this marketplace have further to go to the downside? Nobody was saying that we were at the bottom, you know, at that time, because it's just a challenging time and nobody's willing to, to stick their neck out and make that claim right now. But they're all very optimistic that this whole sector is going to come back. And I think that's what we all have to take away from this is that as investors in this sector, is it over for good? Or should we still be seriously looking to invest more monies and take advantage of these uh, discount prices that we're seeing today. And that was the message that uh, basically everybody is looking to take advantage of these opportunities and trying to be very selective, looking for those that have got some cash in the bank. And it's almost those really small companies that, let's just say, a pure exploration play. Those are going to be the ones that are going to be a little bit more challenged, I think. Uh, You're sure not going to be able to raise money in this market environment. Again, my observation and and definitely my firm opinion is that the bottom will be in. It will be in probably soon, meaning maybe no more than a couple of months at this point, June, July, possibly into August. Is always a chance, of course, the bottom is already in for gold. We're kind of flip-flopping around here right now, still a little bit below 1400 So we are off the bottom. Silver's a couple of dollars off the bottom. But, you know, you never know if the bottom's in place till you get much, much further down the road, you know, and then you look at the technicals and, and yada, yada, yada. It's definitely right now a caution flag is still out for investors, but what we all have to do is analyze ourselves, our personal beliefs. Do we think that the markets are coming back for the juniors? If so, we need to be taking advantage of these opportunities. So that's what I'm always continuing to look for. And uh, I may mention I, I had dinner with a couple of geos in Guadalajara last night, geologists, and we were literally brainstorming about a whole basket full of companies and some that I currently own, some that I um, have a little knowledge of, but it's like more sitting there thinking, what do you think about this? What do you think about this company? It was a really cool uh, experience. And so I picked up a couple of good 
good ideas that I'm going to do my own due diligence on, but companies that have got some cash and some great properties. And this is going to be the, the key. Is like if you're looking to buy anything now, we're going to have to get much smarter and more selective in case these markets do challenge us a little bit more to the downside. Let's all get smart here. So I'm, I'm excited. It was a fun evening in the city. Now, I understand you went out to dinner with some of the same folks we went out to dinner with two years ago. And maybe I'm speaking out of school here, but I understand not any one person is picking up the check anymore. No, it was a rather uh, conservative event. Let's put it all in perspective. We know every aspect of this resource business that people are being challenged. Whether you're a newsletter writer and you're losing a few subscribers, whether you're a company that's having to maybe cut back some staff and lay off some people in the same way when you go to these conferences. But the observation was this year is that in past years, Ellis, where you and I have been together in New York and San Francisco and frequently invited out by a group and somebody picks up the tab and nobody's greatly worrying too much about the dollars, you know. This year I ended up, it was a a group of five Five of us, three CEOs from uh, three of the companies and companies that I'm very familiar with and one investment relation gal and myself. So there was five of us, but we did not go to the fancy exclusive restaurants, which we didn't need to do, but it was a much more conservative, very nice uh, restaurant we went to. But the message was everybody's watching their dollars this year. Now, let's face it, that's not a bad thing, but it's just uh, an awareness that we're just not throwing money away anymore. And in this case, even though there was only five of us, not one person picked up the bill. This bill was split three ways. The three CEOs said, hey, let's just divide it by three. In the past, you'd have probably never seen that, you know. But again, running a business, we all have to get smart, you know, whether you're in the mining business or any other kind of business, and manage those funds. And when the business is lean and mean, we've got to get lean and mean and make some sensible decisions. So I fully respected what they were doing. And of course, I'm always willing to throw in and pay. I'm not expecting anybody to to give me a free ride if if somebody wants to that's fine but never anticipate that taking place i love the camaraderie to go out with the group and always uh, either sometimes i'm picking up the tab or definitely willing to chip in anyhow it was a good group but again the tone of the individuals you can tell everybody is i guess fearful as would be a good word because it's the fear of the unknown you might say we don't know if the markets have got a lot further to go to the downside and if so what's going to help happen to these share prices you know obviously they they continue to get a little worse nobody wants their company to get beat up too much so it was almost the, the fear but more the fear of the unknown i think everybody's fully optimistic uh, their companies are going to come back how long is this going to take so definitely a, a different event that's fantastic what do you have on the horizon what do i have on the horizon well i tell you i'm still spending a lot of time just to toot my horn here on the on the common stock warrants where we're actually have expanded the warrant database coming into the united states markets with all the banks and restaurants oil and gas companies a lot of different opportunities with the long-term warrants so I'm finding a lot more news almost every day. There's an announcement, you know, of a company, you know, new listing and warrants. And the question is, is that warrant going to trade or not? And so over the last couple of days, added a few new warrants to the database here in the United States. And it's a little more time consuming than it has been in the past because we basically double tripled the number of warrants that we're following now and to stay on top of all this. And it's fun and we've greatly diversified the business now. If those listening are not familiar with what the heck I'm doing, you can just now kind of go to commonstockwarrants.com, and we got all of the warrants trading. Yeah, my observation that, again, I think is pretty interesting is that so many of the companies in the United States now, these warrants will go out to almost 
five years. A lot of the banking warrants go out to 2018, 2019. Several of the new companies that we've just recently added, oh gosh, I mean, there's tech companies, there's a broadcasting company that's got a warrant, five-year warrant. So most of these new ones are all five years. You know, I think what we're probably going to see at the end of the day here is once the cleansing is over with with the metals, I think there's a a decent chance we're going to have the uh, financial markets in the United States continue to rally after probably a pretty good pullback, but we'll continue to rally. And all those books that we heard about years ago, that Dow 20,000, Dow 25,000, that may come to pass. You know, I think there's an argument to be made that the resource sector is going to participate in a big way to the upside at the same time. We're all ready to have some fun. If listeners are strictly in the resource sector, obviously we've been beaten up pretty bad, all of us. If warrants are of interest to you, you can sure diversify out to a lot of different industries and sectors here by looking for some really interesting companies with long-term warrants that could really skyrocket in price. I'm seeing a lot of lot of them that I deem to be undervalued just looking at the, the number calculations. So pretty interesting stuff. Well, Dudley, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Great to be with you, Alice, always. Thanks. I've been chatting with Dudley Baker of CommonStockWarrants.com. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, EllisMartinReport.com. Subscribe to our news alerts. When one of our sponsor companies puts out some news, you'll know about it fast. Register at EllisMartinReport.com. That's EllisMartinReport.com. The following segment is sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Stuart Ross, the president of El Tigre Silver Corp. Stu, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Always nice to be here. Now, we haven't talked in uh, quite some time, a couple of months. There's been some new developments down there at the El Tigre project near Hermosillo. That's correct, Ellis. We've completed our 2013 drill program, drilled 4,862 meters. The uh, assays are coming in on a weekly basis. We have I believe at this stage 11 holes out of 38 that have not been reported. The 11 holes will be reported over the next two weeks. Progress is being made as well with the data from the drill holes on our 43101 update. So you've done a bunch of work outside of the tailings, which, by the way, the tailings are what you're going to use to go into production hopefully next year. And you've got a lot of property, 431 square kilometers, as I recall. How much of that will you be drilling in the near future? Of the 431 square kilometers, we have an area of 1.5 kilometers of strike length, which is what we've been focusing on. The 1.5 kilometers is the actual workings from the old mine, 35 years of production. There's another three plus kilometers of vein system to the north of it that's been explored but not mined. So we have a total of about 5.3 kilometers of strike length. 31 square kilometers, Ellis is 15 kilometers by 25 kilometers in area. So we're not using a lot of it at this stage. You're just staying within basically what was the previous mine. You're going in more depth than they could decades ago with the technology that was available at the time. That's correct. We are, in fact, 
drilling in an area where the previous mine was. We focused in the last year on the southern 1.2 kilometers of that area, and we have drilled, as I said, our last program just finished here in 2013 for just short of 5,000 meters. That will give us no more than 50 meter spacings over the 1.2 kilometers. That allows us to build a block model and produce a resource in our 43101 that's being revised. Now that revised 43101 is going to include the tailings, are they not? Yes, we have in fact determined that we will also include the tailings. We'll produce a different report for the tailings. The tailings will in fact be a reserve with a pre-feasibility being done. At this stage in the game, we are in fact doing the work necessary to produce that report. The work has not been completed, so we don't currently have a pre-feasibility, but it will be something that we're working towards in the revised 43101. And you expect that, as I recall, to be completed more or less around the end of June? That's correct. We've been having weekly conference calls with the engineering firm that's producing the block model for us, and we're still on target. Timeline is still the same the end of June of this year. Now, we're speaking to you in Vancouver right now. You're in Vancouver and I'm in Los Angeles. But by the time this airs, you'll be back in Mexico. You spend quite a bit of time there. Why is that? It's necessary to, to be in Mexico because that's where the project is. The work that goes on here in Vancouver is administrative in nature and it's uh, investor relations in nature. I don't need to be here for that. And I would rather be in Mexico because there's a lot more going on there. We have a camp with, as you and I both know, some great food. <laughs> so I like going back for that. But there's lots of work to be done back there as well, both in the office in Hermosillo and at the camp at El Tigre. That's funny. I've lived in the southwestern U.S. for well over 35 years now, and some of the best Mexican food that I've ever had is at the El Tigre camp. I mean, how many mining companies can say that? It is amazing. I love it. That's one of the reasons I like to go back, but I'm being facetious. The real reason is, is because that's where the work's being done, so that's where I need to be. Well, your background is basically in finance, and you're a numbers guy. You're not an engineer by trade, but I've got to tell you, out of many of the, the companies that I've become familiar with, it, it's hard to find the president of the company or the chairman on site as much as you've been. Well, I, I appreciate the comment. I, I still think that's where the work is. That's If that's where the work is, that's where I have to be. Now, talk about some of the grades you've been recovering over the last few months. I understand the feasibility study is not complete yet. You don't have your final numbers ready yet for the 43101 report, but let's talk about some of those grades. We released on April the 3rd a news release that said we had 75 meters of 2.26 grams of gold that equated to 24.8 grams of silver and 1.76 grams of gold. That's not a very high grade, but it's 72 meters of it, which is what we're looking for. We're looking for a bulk target in the Gold Hill area. Along with that, we have in that same news release, we reported whole uh, 51 as an example with just short of a kilo of silver and 11 grams of gold over a, a shorter interval. So what we have in this area is very high grade veins that we're drilling are unmined veins so that when we do drill them the core comes out with the clean vein material and we get those kinds of grades. We have in fact in the later news release that we did there's grades that are the same kind of equivalence. We have 26 meters of, of 1.7885 meters of almost a gram of gold, 54 meters of almost a gram. So again the lower grade stronger intersections and along with that we had hole 71 which had just short of two kilos of silver on a uh, almost a half a meter, 0.3 meters. Again, not a very big intercept, but huge grades. 
I see here on one particular intercept that you didn't mention, but I will, 571 grams per ton of silver and 11.87 grams per ton of gold. That's very significant. Granted, it's 2.15 meters, but if you found something like that, who knows what else might be under, under there. That's what we're finding. We're finding that, again, this area we're drilling, it has a halo around the vein system. The halo is, is providing us with grades that are mineable grades, decent mineable grades, one to two grams of gold per ton. But what's not in that, in each of those intercepts, is the high-grade vein system that still exists, where we're getting upwards of anywhere from a half a meter to a meter and a half of half a kilo to two kilos of silver per ton. I mean, those are enormous grades. That is enormous. Now, how deep do you have to go before you hit a motherlode vein? The vein system runs from surface dips for 450 meters from the old mine system and the mine records we have. We don't go any deeper than 220 meters. 700 feet equivalent, if you like, is where we're looking for the ore body. We're looking for it in that area so that we can, in fact, open pit when the time comes for us to mine it. If we go below 700 feet, below 225 meters, an open pit becomes problematic, so we don't drill below that. That's not to say that the vein doesn't go below that, because the vein through the old mine records shows 450 meters, 1,500 feet of dip. That's for another time down the road. You plan on this being an open pitable project for the foreseeable future, and you intend on using funds from the tailings, which you expect to go into production in the near future, like we discussed, to fund the uh, larger El Tigre project down the road, correct? That's correct. We're hoping and expecting that the results that we get from the tailings, from producing the tailings, will give us the uh, resources we need to continue the project both from a drill perspective and also an expansion perspective. All right, I'm going to ask you a question right now, Stu. What are you particularly excited about right now? What haven't we said? I think we've said it all. We've got 5.3 kilometers of strike length. We're drilling 1.2 of it. We'll have a resource by the end of June, and the resource will be based on 1.2 kilometers out of 5.3. What we've seen in the drill results that we're getting to date is that we have a halo around the vein system that will give us mineable grades, and we'll have a vein system, albeit short intercepts, but the vein system with very high grade that will add to the value of that ground. Well stated. I need to ask you this question, though, Stu. Many people are saying, in fact, I'll go ahead and say it, it is a tough market right now. Is there any concern at all in your mind with regard to the stock market, the metals market, the price of silver, and what you're doing in El Tigre? I'd be silly if I said it wouldn't concern me. The market has been difficult at best. Raising funds has been difficult. We have a very strong following of shareholders in Alberta. We have raised, all the money we've raised basically from 2011 onwards has been with those private investors. They're still very much behind the project. So from that perspective, I'm encouraged that we would be able to continue to fund it going forward. We have the funds for the rest of this year. We've paid for our drill program already. We're good to go with that. What we need is funding for the tailings. We're working diligently on getting that put together and hope to do so in the near future. Stu, it's always a pleasure to speak with you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, more than welcome. Thanks for having me. I look forward to our next conversation in the very near future after you get back from Mexico again. I've been speaking with Stuart Ross, the president and CEO of El Tigre Silver Corp. El Tigre trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. Their website is eltigresilvercorp.com. Find their logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and listen to this segment again on the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety 
downloadable on iTunes. This segment has been sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. Want to make money in resource stocks? Stay informed with Resource World Magazine, covering the latest developments in mining, oil, and gas and alternative energy. Subscribe now to save half off the newsstand price. Simply visit resourceworldmag.com or call 604-484-3800. Or pick up the latest edition at select book and magazine outlets. Resource World Magazine, your insight into the world of resource investment. Today through Thursday. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. Find out a bunch more things to find out about at that guy's website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Prophecy Platinum. Prophecy Platinum trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Prophecy Platinum is a mining company focused on the acquisition and development of Platinum Group Metals, PGM projects, in politically stable, mining-friendly jurisdictions. Prophecy's 100% owned Wellgreen property is one of the world's largest underdeveloped nickel sulfide projects with a very unique platinum and palladium resource that creates very compelling economics, economics that you'll hear about in this interview. You'll also hear about Prophecy's near-production Shakespeare Project, a nickel project near Sudbury, Ontario. Mr. Johnson has a long history in the mining sector, beginning with Placer Dome, now Barrick Gold. He was a co-founder of widely successful Nova Gold and most recently helmed South American Silver. Greg, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back. For new listeners to the program, why don't you give us a brief snapshot of the company, if you don't mind? You bet. Prophecy Platinum is a a Canadian-listed and QX-listed company that is uh, focused on development of a world-class scale platinum-palladium asset that's located up in the Yukon Territory of Canada. Seven million ounces in platinum and palladium metal in the ground, which which makes it world-class in scale. Uh, There are very few assets of of that caliber anywhere in the world, but particularly outside of uh, Southern Africa or Russia, where over 90% of the world's platinum is produced. We've recently put together a new team, and we're moving forward on an exciting early-stage development company and project. Two of the strongest points about your company, other than the size of the deposit, is that the Wellgreen project in the Yukon that you just overviewed is very close to infrastructure and the Alaska Highway, and it's open pitable. Yeah, both those factors are really important. And, you know, in the mining business, where your project is located is, is almost as important as the, the size and quality of the project, because if you can't access it, or if it's exceedingly expensive to put infrastructure in, you know, that's going to be a challenge for the development. So the fact that this project's just off of the paved Alaska Highway, has access to two different Alaskan ports, is, is a huge advantage for us. And 
in a market where some of your listeners are probably familiar that you know capital cost rise concerns and things have, have been present even for the major mining companies it's the kind of situation that is going to help us allow the project to move forward without these massive cost estimates in terms of building the project and we think this is the type of project that the mid-tier and larger mining companies are going to be particularly interested in going forward because it's going to be modest sized in terms of capital investment, but has the potential to be very significant producer. In fact, our estimates are that this could be one of the largest producing platinum palladium mines in North America and one of the largest in the world. You believe you have double, if not triple, the assets that you already have. Pure speculation on my part, of course, but you're going to be drilling to see what else you might have in the immediate area. Yeah, we're pretty excited. Our, our team is, uh, is a technical team, strong in, in the geology side as well as the engineering. And we have developed several new targets that we're quite excited to be testing in this year's uh, field program. We've done a combination of uh, what we call geophysical work, which are surveys that test either the magnetic or electrical properties of the ore body and give us back a, a signal that we can map and develop targets from, along with sampling the soils. Soils are weathered bedrocks. If you have elevated metals in your soils, it's a great targeting tool to use for testing. And we have a number of very large targets that have both elevated copper, platinum, palladium, and nickel in the soils, along with these geophysical targets that we're quite excited to to test. And one of these is about the same size as the current well green area that that hosts the 7 million ounce resource. And the second one is about one and a half times larger. Both these areas have seen historic exploration work, but they really haven't been drill tested. So we're we're pretty excited to to get on the ground in those two areas, particularly where, you know, these are targets that are coming right to surface and could be amenable to, you know, shallow open pit mining that could really enhance the economics of the project. When some think of platinum, they relate it to jewelry. But the fact is that it's a key component in automobiles, including catalytic converters. As the BRIC countries continue their industrial growth and economic expansion, the need for platinum and palladium increases. And as long as men and women walk this earth, there will always be automobiles. Yeah, that's the single largest segment of use for both platinum and palladium, particularly palladium, which is uh, it has been in the news here recently. You know, it's up probably more than 20% if you look back over the last year or so. You know, certainly outperforming both platinum and gold, uh, which is gold has particularly been relatively flat. Almost 70% of our palladium goes into catalytic converters for gasoline engines. It's typically a mix between platinum and palladium. Yeah, these two metals, very strong growth profile, largely driven off of growth in automobile sales, particularly in the BRIC countries, the growing development world. And we're looking at, with increased environmental regulations in those areas and concerns about pollution, that they'll probably be bringing their concentrations of the platinum palladium metals up in those catalytic converters to be more similar to North American standards. So, you know, if you look at the trend, increased growth in demand for platinum and palladium has has really been in place since the early 1980s, almost year on year. The interesting thing about these markets today is that with so much of the production concentrated in Southern Africa and Russia, we've seen that the mining supplies basically peaked in 2005, 2006 for these metals and has been on significant decline since that point. So it really sets this market up for investors to have the opportunity that there may be significant price increases in the metals. And of course, increasing uh, underlying metal prices will mean higher prices for the equities in the market at some point. Let's address those members of our audience that have lost money in the sector, the market, gold and silver, and those that have been watching metal prices decline as of late. 
why should we presently take a look at platinum and palladium, and specifically your company, Prophecy Platinum, as a potential investment opportunity now? Well, I think the context to always keep in mind when looking at the mineral sector is that it is a cyclical industry, which means that we go through these waves of, of demand and price increases and, and equity increases, and then we'll often go through a period, not just in this sector, but almost any sector, where if you perform at the very top of the performance ratings for any given sector for several years, you'll often see a period in which money is taken out of the sector and rotates. And you know, At this point, if we look back and we use uh, the gold sector as, as an analog, the prices today for the mining companies versus the gold price itself are near decade level lows. We last saw these kind of prices on a gold miners versus gold basis in 2008 during the extreme market crash conditions and back in 1999 when gold hit its low at $250 an ounce. Now platinum and palladium have tended to track with gold in a broad sense and bottomed in 1999 as well and of course were hit hard during the 2008 crash and if we compare the platinum miners versus metal we see a very similar pattern where even though platinum and palladium are up 20 plus percent if we look back over the last year or so the platinum miners themselves have seen their prices cut in half during that period so reflecting this kind of pulling of money out of the sector that you referenced earlier the opportunity i think is when you see these kind of extreme levels of valuation is this is the time for longer term investors to be picking away and putting money to work at levels that are extreme undervaluation points and that are likely to turn as we see sentiment shift because you know at this point these things really start to become very, very undervalued and are likely to start to attract capital back into the sector at these levels in the hopefully relatively near future. You're not necessarily looking for any special attention to the sector. You're simply saying that the value of the stock most likely doesn't reflect that value of what you have in the ground. And at some point, the market will recognize this and respond accordingly in a positive fashion. Yeah, and I think that if we can use these longer-term barometers of relative value, it gives one a sense of, well, where are we in this this process? As you said, you know, anyone who's been invested in this sector since really 2010 has seen that the equities uh, have continued to move down, even though the metals themselves gold has been flat and you know platinum and palladium have moved up significantly since those periods and so that reflects really investor sentiment at some point that trend turns and the opportunities to be able to have accumulated you know shares in high quality companies at these extremes of undervaluation give the investor oftentimes much better returns when the sector actually changes. The thing that's encouraging to me is that the sentiment is so negative. If one takes a bit of a contrarian perspective, these are often the periods at which you know we're, we're close to, to lows in valuation and value investors start to swarm. And I think a good example of this is the private equity firms, the guys who are the professionals in the business, who do their due diligence and really take their time, have turned their focus to the mining sector in a way that I haven't really seen previously in the last 10 years or more. And I think they're recognizing the value points at this level in all stage of companies, the the major mining companies as well as the smaller ones. And with the fundamentals for platinum and palladium looking so strong, year-on-year increasing demand and falling production since 2005-2006, I think this sector is in particular getting a lot of focus and I think it's really only a matter of time before we start to see money flowing into these names recognizing the potential upside and start to see a turn and I suspect that much like the 99-2001 period for gold platinum may lead again like it did in in that period in terms of bottoming first and, and
and turning upward and moving up to new levels of highs. And you're seeing these indicators unofficially, aren't you? Absolutely. I think there's indications in the mining complex in general that there's been capitulation. You're seeing it very difficult for many companies to raise money. So there's a number of factors that are all indicators of just kind of investor fatigue. And as as contrarian as it sounds like, that's that's often a sign this difficult period is, is probably going to see an end at some point as the selling abates and as we start to see value investors looking to come in. You're somewhat of a high-profile CEO after your success with Nova Gold, Greg, and you took that company on as a co-founder and helped them achieve great success. You've been with only about three companies that I can remember, including Prophecy in the last 13 years or so. Did you seek out Prophecy? Did the company court you? How did this marriage take place? This is my third public company. I'm fortunate that we had tremendous success technically and with investors, you know, on my previous companies that I've been involved with. This is a company that really, Prophecy Platinum, had all the features that I was really looking for my next opportunity in terms of scale of the asset, location of the asset, new team coming together, some of which I've worked with in the past. And really, for me, uh, it was close to home in the Yukon, not too far north of where I live in, in Vancouver, and an opportunity to have a story that I felt really excited about, particularly when I dove into the trends that we see in the metals. And I think that platinum and palladium have got one of the best looking fundamental value equations with this increasing demand growth that's been on trend for years and years and the fact that so much of the production comes out of uh, South Africa and Russia for palladium that the opportunity to see the need for high quality new projects in a relatively small market space relative to the size of the gold market was a huge opportunity something that uh, I really just couldn't pass up. The Fraser Institute just released a study on what the best mining jurisdictions in the world are and yours is not very far from the top for several reasons. Talk about that. Yeah, the recent Fraser Institute study just came out. This is a study which basically surveys all the major mining jurisdictions around the world. Canada consistently ranks near the very top, and the individual provinces and territories are ranked as well. So the Yukon moved up globally from the 10th best location in the world to the 8th best in this most recent survey, and and that's comparing it against you know, 115 other jurisdictions around the world. So it really illustrates how the industry sees uh, the Yukon Territory. I think looking at our project in particular, because of the uh, infrastructure benefits that we, we have, where there are existing roads and, and access to the project and access to ports, it would even probably move it up higher than that because, you know, the Yukon does have some areas which are quite remote. And if you're uh, a project that's remote and requires a lot of infrastructure build out, it's going to be more challenging. So I, I think it's a great indicator where the industry sees the Yukon. Political risk is an issue in the mining sector. We've seen a rise in geopolitical resource nationalism and and geopolitical risks in the mining industry. The reality, Ellis, is that mines today are going to be found in two different locations. If they are large and of quality, they're either going to tend to be remote or they're going to tend to be in extremely high political risk jurisdictions, and that's why they haven't been developed. And so I think one would say that with the increasing geopolitical issues of working in many of these third world countries, though the the targets may be very large and may have value, uh, I think many investors are seeking the the safety and the the comfort of working in a place like Canada and, and the Yukon Territory. Let's quickly talk about the share structure of this company. Yeah, so the company, relative to the very large size of its resource base, is, is really quite tightly held. We've got about 68 million shares outstanding. Management owns directly about 6% of those. And, of course, we have a larger exposure through our, our incentive options, which are designed to align you know, performance for, for shareholders. This is a company that 
We have some marquee investors. A Sprott Resource Group out of Toronto is probably considered one of the leading resource investors, and they own just under 10% of the company's shares. And then we've got a large number of investors who've, who've put money in the company successively and are strong supporters. So over time, I think you'll see, much like Nova Gold, you'll see an evolution of new, well-recognized institutional investors come into the roster. And that's really one of the areas that we'll be focusing going forward in terms of bringing in those investors that understand the sector and are looking for high-quality names to put money to work in. Can we see a stratospheric share price someday, much as we saw with Nova Gold? I'm really asking you to speculate here, of course. I think the opportunity here, based on our early initial models, uh, is quite encouraging. It would suggest net asset value on a per-share basis of several dollars, depending on what metal prices you use and other assumptions. You know, one could see current net asset value estimates in the 3 to $6 range today, and it's still quite early in terms of optimization and, and opportunity for growth of the resources, as we've talked about. If we look at the last time Prophecy put out its resource estimate back in 2011, there's a more favorable market at the time for juniors than we see currently. The stock moved from kind of this current 70, 75 cent level to north of $4 a share based on the development of a 7 million ounce resource. That resource is still in place. We now have engineering that wraps around it and the stock is back to the pre-resource valuation. So again, it's another indicator of the extreme level of opportunity in the marketplace where significant progress like ours is no longer being reflected in the share price, but ultimately will be again. Greg, thanks so much for the conversation today. I look forward to catching up with you again in the near future. Well, really appreciate it and look forward to uh, giving you an update again soon. I've been chatting with Greg Johnson, the CEO of Prophecy Platinum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. You can listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com, and we encourage you to download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Hey, this is Cool Voice Guy. Would you like to hear all of that again? Go to the podcast page of our website. That's ellismartinreport.com. ellismartinreport.com. Otherwise known as ellismartinreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Alkane has significant assets of zirconium in its double zirconia project with rare earths and rare metals, and then gold in its Tomlingley Gold project, as well as copper in New South Wales, Australia. Ian, welcome back to the program. Hi, Alice. It's uh, nice to be talking to you again. Since we've last spoken, Alkane has had two significant news releases. The government of New South Wales has granted you that mining lease that you were waiting for. It's a new government, isn't it? And then you have an update on construction at Tomlingley. You expect to be producing gold by the end of the year. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. I mean, it certainly was a, a long process to get the mining lease approved. And you, you're right about the government, although they did change about uh, two years ago. But like all new governments, they take a little while to get things sorted out. But yes, we finally had the mining lease granted. And uh, that's enabled us to push the button to go. Uh, we virtually started the construction work immediately after we got approval and relatively short timetable to get the project up and running. So by the end of the year, so certainly in December, we'll be commissioning the plant and should be fully producing gold uh, sometime early in the new year, so it's going well. Any chance that can happen sooner? I'm sure you're being conservative by saying you expect to begin producing gold by the beginning of next year, allowing yourself some extra time, but if you already have shovels in the ground, who knows? 
Yes, it's, um, I'm always a bit cautious. Uh, the engineers assure me that's the timetable and uh, I have to be guided by their opinions and uh, yes, it'd be, it'd be great to do a shorter timetable but I think realistically it's still about probably 10 months, 11 months to construct and then get it up and running. Now from what I read, you're extending your mine life at Tomlingley from 7 to 10 years, is that true? Yes, it's heading in the right direction. Uh, just recently, and along with the mining lease approval, we've announced some drilling results from a, a new prospect inside the mining lease area, which is good. It's very close to the existing infrastructure. But it's another deposit we call Coloma 2, just because it's located near the actual main Coloma deposit. And we've generated some quite spectacular drill intersections. Uh, some we announced yesterday was a metre at 821 grams, and if I convert that for you, it's about probably three and a half feet at 26 ounces. So you can appreciate that's a quite a spectacular intercept. It, it's certainly the best we've ever had in the whole of the Tomlingley Gold Project where we've been drilling now for sort of eight or nine years. So it's nice to see a spectacular result, but supported by many, many other good results also, which uh, just helps the overall sort of future of the project. And extending it out, as you said, from its sort of seven and a half year life out towards the 10 years, which is what we always targeted. That's almost an unbelievable amount. I don't see that too often. Look, it's, I like to say, it's not that uncommon when you're dealing with gold and uh, every now and again you do pick up one of these spectacular intersections. A, a drill bit just happens to go through a very rich patch in the ground. But it'd be nice to say you could do it regularly and end up with some quite spectacular average grades across the deposit, but it doesn't happen all that, that often. But at least, as I said, the supporting other drilling intersections we're getting are supporting a, a fairly good project there, but um, that's still has a way to go before we can sign off and say what the resource is and what the mineability of it is. Did you take any photographs of the core? It's actually from what we call a reverse circular drilling so that uses a hammer hammering into the ground so the sample comes up as sort of fine powder but the geologist who was uh, logging the material at the time said he was a bit taken aback because at first of all he thought it was something like pyrite disseminated through the crushed sample and then he looked closely and realized it was gold so that's pretty unusual in my experience just to see gold in particularly a reverse circulation type sample is very unusual but it's quite clear there apparently. But no, to answer your question, sorry, we, we didn't take any photographs. We probably should. I'd love to see them. You can almost take that right to the smelter, can't you? You could probably sieve the sample and, and then make some money just out of the residual gold with those sorts of grades that are 26 ounces. In that sample, in today's gold price, you've got several hundred thousand dollars. Not bad for a day's work, I guess. It'd be great, yeah. Just love to think you could do that all the time. Instead of having a mining operation, a processing facility, we'll all get out there with our shovels and uh, dig our way to glory. That's almost how it was done back in the Old West in the 1850s here in California. No, absolutely. I, I think worldwide the prospector activity and you know, the 1 in 1,000 or 1 in 10,000 prospectors that made it good probably had one of those situations where he, he sunk his shovel into something quite spectacular and, and made his fortune. So uh, unfortunately we tend to be a bit more systematic these days and do things and spend large amounts of money getting large deposits and building large processing plants and doing all that, but uh, perhaps the good old days sometimes are better. Well, no matter what the share price seems to be for gold stocks right now, you're headed into production. You'll have a market for that gold right away. That will bring revenue into the company. Not many juniors can say that at the moment. No, absolutely, uh, and you're right. I mean, it was always the target with this project. We knew it was never going to be a large gold operation, but at 55,000, 60,000 ounces a year, it'll generate something like 30 million a year cash flow. Uh, and if we do push it out from the seven and a half years to 10 years, that's a, a nice, consistent, steady stream uh, of income. It keeps us out of the need to go back to the market all the 
time to, to keep generating funds. So uh, it'll be a very good and, as we call it, a, a bread and butter business for us while we look towards to developing the, the bigger Dubbo Zirconia project. Well, we have a depressed market, so to speak, for precious metals, although compared to several years ago, bullion is still indeed high. We're seeing elevated prices for platinum and palladium. Car sales are up here in the great state of California, the world's eighth largest economy. In fact, they're booming. This has to be a great sign for companies slated to produce base metals, rarers, rare metals, zirconium, and a host of other minerals. The economy may be turning around here in the U.S. Yes, I mean, that's certainly the vibes we're getting also. We're hearing that there certainly are some, some signs of life and starting to rub off through the consumer profiles and what's coming out. And as you're right, I mean, across the board, the metals that we're interested in, mainly the zirconium and the rare earths, have been really quite low for 12 months now that they've taken a real hammering but it's very important going forward to see the u.s economy rebound because there's no doubt it's it's one of the most important economies in the world and you're right about things like vehicle sales i mean one of the major uses of zirconia is that it's a ceramic that sits in the car exhaust system it's that bulbous thing down towards the back end of your exhaust and that uses about half a kilo of zirconia ceramic and it's an integral part of the emissions minimization so we're very happy to see car sales starting to pick up because that'll flow on back into the guys that manufacture the auto catalysts and hence come and consume uh, zirconia which we produce so it's all good to see and it's all good to see a little bit of I guess vibrancy starting to come back into the world. You haven't really experienced any sort of recession in Australia, have you? No, but it's been mixed. The politicians love to talk about a two-speed economy here, and they've got the general mining industry, the resources sector, is really booming along and has been for five or six years. The manufacturing side of the country has been very depressed. We have great difficulty competing with Asian imports and those sort of things. So that's taken a bit of a hammering. So I guess overall, though, the country's come out pretty well, really supported by the resources industry. I do shudder to think what it would have looked like had we not had that very vibrant resource industry. So everything that you'll be producing will go offshore? At this stage, yes. We really have a very limited market here for what I call these exotic metals, the, the sort of things that go that they're made into. The Australian manufacturing industry is quite small. We've traditionally tended to, to buy things in from, from the US, China and Europe. And so that's where our product goes. It goes off to where those metals are consumed. And in a sense, no matter what the economy is doing around the world, all of that offtake is spoken for in advance, isn't it? It is. Uh, certainly we're still working on the zirconium side, particularly because we've changed our strategy slightly. We were encouraged two years ago by a large Asian group to look at producing a product called zirconium oxychloride. And the reason for that was that China currently supplies about 90% of the world's uh, zirconium oxychloride and this particular partner was seeing rapid escalations in price restrictions in supply so they came to us and said look you've got a very large resource that's not related to zircon which is the the normal precursor to oxychloride and would we look at it together with them to develop a, a new source now we've gone down that path but at a point now where in the last six months we've seen that there's carnium oxychloride really the price the demand for it collapsed dramatically and so we've now reverted back to our original concept which is to produce other zirconium chemicals and the zirconias particularly the the high purity zirconia which we produce from our standard flow sheets so that's the only area where we probably changed our model in terms of sales in the last six months but things like our niobium we're very close to signing the final stages of a joint venture to produce ferro niobium and sell to a european alloy manufacturer and then with the rare earths our deal with the the giant uh, chemical company in japan shinetsu is progressing very very well and that's a 
I still consider that the most exciting development that we've done with the Dubbo Zirconia project, just guarantee to take our output of the two light, the light concentrate and the heavy concentrate and then produce all the individual separated rare earths and then have Shinetsu buy the, the area that they have interest in and, and leave us with the remainder to sell. So it's a very good result. It takes out for us the risk of having to develop uh, a rare earth separation flow sheet and also the additional finance that would come with capital cost to, to build that plant. So we're very comfortable. Everything's going along quite well. Uh, the project is still on schedule for uh, approval late this year or early in the new year and then productions of late 2015. So it's all going the right direction. We're looking at a potential mid-tier company with Alcan, aren't we? Absolutely. I mean, really... When you look at Alcane in, say, 2016, 2017, we'll be generating cash flows in the order of uh, $250 million Australian dollars a year from Dubbo Project, another $30 million a year from the Gold Project. So, you know, we'll be in that spectrum of 250 to $300 million a year, and that certainly will change the character of Alcane and set it up to be a strong company going way into the future. Now, it's quite obvious that I'm talking to the president of an Australian-based company, and this is an overseas interview, but Alcane actually trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY at pretty much a ground floor share price. I'm speculating when I say that, and you would be too. But the opportunity would be now to really capitalize on your investment as a new shareholder. Of course, there will continue to be opportunity as you roll out into production. But again, the best opportunity is probably right now when the market in general is potentially very undervalued. I completely agree with you. Yes, we believe we've got to the bottom. Uh, we've really had sort of downward trend now for six months on the Alcane share price, and it's been bouncing around that level now at around 60 cents Australian. That on the OTC would be uh, probably six dollars, uh, but it's been bouncing around that level now for some time. And when you look at the assets the company's got, I mean, just in cash and our tradable shares, uh, we've got something like 45 cents of value there. So if you take 45 cents from from 60 cents, and then you look at the value and the, the Tomingley Gold project and the enormous value in the Dubbo Zirconia project, it's a very cheap price at this point in time. I guess that's one way to summarise it. And there's no reason not to speculate that when eyes and ears get back into this end of the sector again. You could be where you were a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. A $26, $27 a stock here in the U.S., yeah, correct. I mean, that's right. I mean, basically, that's what we think. We understand the market dynamics and, and there's a lot of concern. And uh, I guess people get very conservative in these type of markets and look more at risk factors. And, and the risk factors they'll apply to us are genuine. We've got two years to get the, the main project up and running. So there's two years to go. And who's going to be sure what happens in that time? But really, the, the downside to the Alcane value right now is pretty small and the upside is enormous and certainly we would believe that sometime going into the new year that the company should be significantly re-rated. Well, the fact remains it's basically supply-side economics. You have the supply, the demand is always going to be there, and the supply may never actually meet the demand. And there's really nowhere to go but up. That's something you can't say, but I'll go ahead and say it. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll agree with you then. Well, Ian, once again, it's been great having this conversation with you. Thanks so much for joining me today. I look forward to speaking with you again in the near future. Thanks very much, Alice. Appreciate it, as always. I've been chatting with Ian Chalmers, the CEO and Managing Director of Alkane Resources. Alkane trades in the U.S. under the symbol A-N-L-K-Y. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes. What? 
It's over. No, it can't be true. What will I do? What will I say? What? Oh, oh, this. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Then they run right back to work and get jiggy with getting busy. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. The Ellis Martin Report is a unit of Big Sky Productions Incorporated. For Ellis Martin, this is Cool Voice Guy. Ciao, babies. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.